You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Return to Me, edition. How does the song Return to Me actually go? Does anyone know the Dean Martin thing? I did, but then you just put the Coco song in my head. Return to me. There you go. There you go. By the way, uh, Robert Loggio and uh, what's-his-face Archie, all those guys in their little discussion, completely off base. In my humble opinion. Oh, yeah? I mean, they Why land. Do they land on. They actually land on Dean, don't they? Basically? They end up pulling Frank when it when it when mm-hmm. it's go time. Sure. Yeah. And bo- so when it matters, they all line up with Frank. Right. And they all get behind the Italian. And, but yeah. I, I think the Irishman, old blue eyes, Bing, obviously the best. Mm, they definitely are not. No, they're not. Bing's not even in the running for them. I mean, they, he comes up maybe once or twice. Yeah, but, he gets mentioned as he should. But, but yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, but they, they really throw Dean a lot of love. And I just don't care about Dean one way or another. I mean, I like when the moon hits your eye with a big pizza pie. So Frank has the best songs. Yeah. Well, he's got the whole American songbook of the era. And so it's hard to go against Frank. You don't have to like Frank's voice as yeah, much as you like boys Bing. Break your legs if you go against him. Well, you know, that's true. But still, it's hard to go against Frank, even minus the boys breaking the legs. I mean, I'm just more of a 30s and 40s guy than I am a 50s and 60s guy. I think that's where it comes down to. I don't like watching Frank Sinatra movies, but I do like watching Bing Crosby movies. Well, that's that's different. That's different. Bing's, I mean, Frank, Frank's movies are just worse. They're just objectively worse movies. They're not... Yeah, it's it's just I mean But but if you're going to have a romantic evening with a wife that you feel like needs some big band swing music or whatever, I think that they were right that Frank's the safer bet, just in terms of you're gonna get eight or ten songs that everybody knows and that you can you know, it's just gonna be better. You you throw Bing on, you're going to get White Christmas and White Christmas yeah, and, and also more White Christmas and so in the Easter Parade mm-hmm. and then more White Christmas. And so, he's got some like ultra classics, but... I, I, I think that's a little bit of an unfair generalization. Ben, your thoughts? <laughs> I, I don't have many thoughts about this. I like, I like Frank Sinatra's music, but I haven't, I just haven't listened to the Rat Pack the, enough. Well, the other thing too is that, okay... Frank, because he had the mob and the money and the whatever else, like, mm. the arrangements around Frank are better, too. Well, and the recording technology is better. Like, mm. you can tell the difference. Like, Bing Crosby basically invented, here's how you sing into the microphone, which is great. But then Frank was like, "We, I have a good microphone and somebody's already invented. Here's how you sing into a microphone. And so, I'm going to mm-hmm. do things that are that are more sophisticated. And I'll, I'll give you the, the Frank's arrangements are better. And, and Bing can be a little basic, although isn't that a good thing? I always forget what the word basic mm, means. It's not a no, good it's not thing. a good thing. Okay. There's one that I get confused on, a, a, a modern word that the kids are slinging around, but I don't remember what that word is. Mm, don't know. I wouldn't turn on either one of them for a romantic evening with the wife. I mean, well, I'm not saying that anybody would, but if you were going to go into that era right, and you had to choose from that era, you would choose Frank. Well, which era? Anywhere from the 30s through the 50s. Uh, is that really Anything in that in genre of the sort of big band. Like if I'm living crooner. in the 30s and 40s? Yeah, but is that really reflected in people's choices? Did, is that how they chose? 
they chose Frank. He was the most popular because wasn't being... Again, I'm ignorant of this stuff, but... What are you talking about? Frank, Frank, We're Frankie. talking about us making a choice now, right? Well, yeah, but you said if you I, lived I, in that era. No, so I was, that's not what I was saying. I was saying if you were... I was also confused, Ben. All right. Uh, you, okay, I, well, then we, I was we confusing. Both I apologize. We tied, time traveled back to the 60s. No, I'm saying that if you were trying to pick music, if for whatever reason, that was the mood you were in, was, it, was you, a crooner. You got to play a crooner, yeah. Okay. And yeah because somebody's twisting your arm or because that's the mood that you're in or whatever you have to go with a crooner from 50s or prior you're gonna put on frank sinatra because you're not gonna run out of songs and it's gonna be better your choices are a crooner from the 1950s or the comedy stylings of richard Pryor. right exactly for a romantic evening right i'm definitely going with a crooner yeah so those are your options what what choice do you have and then then you've got to pick your your crooner. It had been so long, folks, I almost didn't jump on the opportunity to make that <laughs> hilarious joke, but <laughs> I think I got it in just under the wire. You did. <laughs> um, listen, well, I don't know. I'm not equipped to litigate this. Yeah. I'm afraid. I just, I wish I could. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, if we're just having an evening, my wife might say, Alexa, play Billy Joel. And all you listening to this out loud, wow. I'm sorry if your Alexa's just started playing Billy Joel. And that's that's her problem, and I immediately changed Alexa to something else, but <laughs> the, the point is, neither one of us is saying play old blue eyes. <laughs> I don't know why I called Bing old blue eyes at the beginning of this podcast. Obviously, Frank is old, old blue, blue eyes. eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bing did, in fact, have piercing blue eyes as well, though. I think that's... Oh, they ran uh, special filters for his movie so that that would... Did they really? I think I did read something like that. Really? Just like they had to film Jet Li with like a camera that would slow down his movements. No, just like Bing was like, I want my (laughs) eyes to look ultra blue. So everything's going to be washed out blue and we have to have the colors. Right. That's, that's, that's that's interesting. That's that my urban legend meter uh, thing is kind of going off here. You might be right. It might be an urban legend. Well, Bing's the kind of guy who would have his own writer just to write jokes for him. So, he is the kind of guy that wanted to look good. He's also the kind of guy that didn't have a lot of patience. Like, they taped back his ears for for years in the early, really early era of his career. And then one day, the tape just kept coming off and he finally said, the heck with it. And I'm just going to be the guy with goofy ears. And then in his movies, there's lots of jokes at the expense of his, his goofy you, you know, you're trying to stop traffic with those, that kind of thing. Yeah. So hilarious stuff like that. So he's the kind of guy that might not have patience for any kind of special process to to make him look that good. But whereas Frank feels like the kind of guy who's like, use the filter, only film me from my good eyes there. It's a good side there, pal. And Or else, buddy, <laughs> backstage might... Uh... Right. <laughs> you might be taking a concrete swim or <laughs> that's what they said that's what they concrete said. swim <laughs> take the, the old, old concrete con- swim <laughs> what's an actual one of those swimming with the sh- sh- mattresses no it's not swimming <laughs> with the mattresses <laughs> be swimming with the fishes swimming with the fishes yeah, yeah. <laughs> sleeping with the fishes with there the you fishes. go swimming sleeping. with the fishes is just like a nice holiday <laughs> I'm afraid you might be swimming with the fishes <laughs> <laughs> well, what kind of fish is we talking about there, Chip? Are we talking about dolphins? Or are we talking about sharks? <laughs> really friendly fishes, Lance, in a wonderful vacation spot. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the Amazon River with piranhas? No, Chip, no. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, guys, have we even said what movie we're talking about? We're talking about Return to Me, 
the 2000 romantic comedy drama i guess it's a rom- it's a romantic I, 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 it's, it's a rom-com it's a, it's a rom-com it's, yeah it's just got more drama than your usual rom-com yeah it's a rom-com with a little extra drama but i'm going to actually argue that this is of a breed that has somewhat disappeared and that only really popped up in the late 80s early 90s and I, I've got guys. I read a whole book about romantic comedies in preparation for this podcast. I don't believe you. I did. It's true. Wow. I mean, I listened to it with my ears, so I guess you were right to call my bluff. I did not read a single word of a book, but you had someone read it to you. Though. I had somebody read it to me. I ordered them to read it to me, and they complied. They complied, thanks to one audible credit. But uh, yeah, we're talking about Return to Me. If you haven't seen the movie, it's got these cute old people. Mm-hmm. And they like to have discussions about who the kind of their shtick is. Anytime you walk into the restaurant, they're in the back playing cards, and they're so they're an they're a, an Irish Italian hybrid family mm-hmm. that have an Irish Italian pub restaurant. Yeah, yeah, they do, and <laughs> it's a fun conceit. It was a little much for me, I have to say. I like this movie, and in town we have a restaurant, our favorite restaurant, probably collectively the three of us in town. Is a what like Thai, but also Detroit style pizza. I, I think I probably would would take tin fish. Well, first, but the, 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 any case, go ahead. To, go ahead. To my point, though. Uh, to your point. There's yeah. a good restaurant in town. It's called Pangea, right? And it, I mean, the conceit is world cuisine, it's really good. and so it pulls from a couple different places, but it's mostly just Thai and and then and pizza. But there's, you know, there's some other dishes and things like that. Yeah, so. I, I have to say when they were like, give me one, uh, whatever, chicken Vesuvio and one corned beef and cabbage. I was like, ah, you're being a little cute movie. I don't right. know. Yeah, that was a little, <laughs> that was a little much. <laughs> but, but I like this movie, so don't, don't let, because and I should say this because a, one of our patrons actually is, is at a, at a level where they can have some influence over what we watch, which you could too, listener, if you bought in at the right level and uh, we gave that patron some options and they decided on return to me and i guess we can say the patron is caitlin hello caitlin hey caitlin hi caitlin i hope you like our take on this movie a movie that i personally enjoyed so you you don't have to be in fear that i will that the claws will be out do you guys like this movie yeah yeah, it's a good it's a good rom com. It's very '90s nostalgic. I realize it was made in the year 2000, but it's '90s. It's a '90s. It's a very yeah. I mean, particularly just the photography. It's shot on film, and you can tell it's got film grain. It's not digitally color corrected, so it just has that warm kind of '90s feel to it. It's shot in Chicago, which is one of my favorite cities, or was before the days of the apocalypse and. Lori Lightfoot and my car be having its window smashed and my, and my computer being stolen, which was my last experience at the very zoo where David Duchovny built a bigger gorilla pen. We walked through that zoo and then we came back to my car and the window was smashed in. So, yay, Chicago. How was the gorilla pen? Uh, it was great. It had, it had the picture of that guy, the donor guy. Inside the monkey house. I mean, I don't That's know. Awesome. Was, uh, I think the gorillas might have actually been on vacation when uh-huh. I was there. We went in the dead of winter, so we saw some polar bears and stuff like that. But it was there was actually not a lot of exciting animal life. But it is a cool zoo, and it's got cool architecture. So good job, David Duchovny. 
So, so where are we? Do I have any tabs to close? I guess the only point I was making is we're talking about Return to Me, and it has one of the conceits is that there's this gaggle of old people, and they like to argue about who the greatest crooner is, and and you've got an Irish Italian restaurant, or the greatest baseball player, or the greatest baseball player, or is there anything else? I guess they also do female singer. I mean, very briefly. Very briefly. I mean, but they all just settle on Ella really quick. So yeah. It's just sort of like thrown out there. Which is crazy. The greatest female singer is obviously Britney Spears. No, it's, I can't think of her name. That hippie. She died when she was 28. I really like her voice. Really raw voice. Me and Charlie McGee. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, Travis McGee. Whatever. Not I, man. Yeah. Like Woodstock. I, I, I'm, I know it, but it, I, I can't pull it. I don't know now. why I can't pull it either. It's weird. Janis Joplin. There you go. Janis Joplin is probably my favorite female singer. But you get that one for free, folks. We're talking about Return to Me, 2000s Return to Me, a Bonnie Hunt joint. From top to bottom, a Bonnie Hunt joint. From top to bottom, a Bonnie Hunt joint. Wrote it, produced it, directed it. Gave herself and... a plum supporting <laughs> part. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Cast. <laughs> Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi as her husband. As her husband. I mean, that's that's exercising power as a director. Like, I'm, I'm finally in the big seat. Now I could cast Jim Belushi to play my husband. Uh, Jim Belushi actually did a good job. But uh, I, I thought overall, minus the copious this is like they were fun. The supporting characters were just the usual suspects of any 90s rom-com. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, I don't denigrate it for that i mean i no. think if you're gonna well what's fun about the 90s i mean i'm a huge uh, 90s rom-coms are my guilty pleasure mm-hmm. i enjoy them i think they're fun and one of the things that i enjoy about them is when you have something that where you do get a, a lot of colorful side characters that provide interest and opportunities for the writers to actually elevate the rom-com because they've got some old guys that are good actors with it, with it. You know, stick some zingers in there and mm. it's going to be fun. Or just get their opinions in there a lot of times. Yeah, or just like, force something in. Yeah, but I wanted I just to talk about yeah, crooners fun. or whatever. So, yeah. yeah, well, maybe we should give some rom-com. I'm trying to think of something that rhymes with rom-com that sticks this baggage. <laughs> some rom-com. Baggage. Baggage, yeah. Yeah. So, what is your rom-com baggage, Jake? You, you're going to say they're your guilty pleasures. I just like the 90s rom-com. I don't know. Some of it's just nostalgia for the 90s there I grew up in. And sure. Whatever. So, I don't know. There's a level of... It seems like in the 90s, well, they were playing with ways to elevate or keep it, the rom-com elevated in a way that wasn't just schlock. I mean... So they were silly and dopey and cheesy, but often they'd have a fun conceit or they'd have a whole host of fun side characters that just made it like an enjoyable, relatively innocent, clean, fun, funny date night at the movies type of thing. The 90s rom-com is the pinnacle of a certain kind of something its own, itself, I guess. And I'm, I have a whole like essay I'm yeah. going to give about this later, but... I've not uh, read a book or thought about it as much in depth. I just... I thought about it all weekend because I I wanted to provide value on this podcast. And I have a whole thesis about 90s rom-coms, but we'll get there. So, Ben, your 
rom-com history? Mm. Well, I have a lot of Return to Me history. My sister loved that movie. It was for a time her favorite movie, I believe. And it was just on constantly. Okay. Back in the days when uh, you put you put your video cassette tape in the VCR and mm-hmm. pressed play. And then you rewound it and you did it again. And uh, Wow, that, this is on the cusp of man, the end of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, it was it was on all the time. I liked it okay. And then I kind of resented it because I just, or I was, I just was done with it. So, you're familiar with every time. beat. You've like lived and breathed to it's, return it's, to me. It's been a long time. I, I spent years ignoring it. So, but yeah, it's, it was like a background, background noise for a while. I feel like. Hello, um, Ben. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> you can't ignore me forever, Ben. Well, I didn't. I watched it again. And uh, I didn't see a lot of 90s rom-coms. I, for whatever reason, I didn't see, name some famous, I never saw Sleepless in Seattle, still haven't. You've got mail? I, I saw that last year. But no, no, I saw that a few months ago with my wife. I guess it was last year. Pretty so. Woman. Never saw it. Any of the Hugh Grants, Four Weddings and a Funeral, nope. Notting Hill. Nope. None uh, of those. Love Actually. Uh, unfortunately, I yeah, did manage to see that one. That movie is one. pure garbage. That movie um, is pure garbage. Uh, any of the, well, it's not not the most reputable of them, but the, any of the Sandler, Barry Moore's like no, no, none wedding of those. singer. Zero. Wedding singer, somehow. 101st Dates or whatever. Right. No, somehow I never saw any of those. So I don't I don't know how I miss all of them, but I had no interest. Any so of the happy to miss them. Heath Ledger, 10 Things I Hate About You. Nope. Nope. I managed to see the, the awful Matthew McConaughey What's her name? Movie. How to lose a guy in ten days. There you go. That's unfortunate. While you were sleeping, Bullock. While you were sleeping, I saw last year with my wife for the first time. Yeah, that squarely belongs to the return to me genre. Absolutely, of yeah. Warm PG rated movies right. that women of a certain age remember mm-hmm. with great fondness, and men of a certain age. I mean, I I, I remember while you were sleeping. Sure. Well, yeah. both but both of them are more like here's a warm, loving family, and the movies as much about that as it is about the romance. Yes, agreed. So, and I respect that quality in uh, while you were sleeping and return to me. For my money, I mean, I'll just I'll just give away one of my hot takes. For my money, the warm, loving family in this particular movie we're discussing today, Return to Me, is actually better than the family in While You Were Sleeping. I agree. I, 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 agree. Prefer, I prefer it too. Yeah. I thought that would be a hot take, but I guess it was not a hot take. I it's the best comparison point, and it's mm. I I don't remember having. I feel like I have seen Return to Me, but mm-hmm. I don't remember having seen it before this viewing. But yeah, I, that's what I was comparing it to, and I like it better. Return to Me is just going to be a little, a little more naturalistic, even if it's going to be cheesy. Right. It's going to feel a little. It's going to be. It's going to underplay most most things it does. Right. Which except while for you, the first act. Yeah, for sure. Although even that, you could argue, the first act being what it is, is an over is is very dramatic. But the way that they pull it off, it. It still kind of underplays things. You know, I'll just say it. I thought that it underplayed everything beautifully until he was sobbing on the, even him yeah. sobbing on the ground was fine. But then we cut to then that you cut back flashback to it. and it's like, ah, yeah. come yep. on. You, you, no, you went, you're right. You, you're right. You, you just, you, you overshot there just a little bit, Bonnie Hunt. In the first act, they overshot several times and especially going back and doing slow motion stuff. But I loved the, all the payoffs and the, the ways that they didn't. Yeah. The the understated, like we never came back to the song. Yeah. That was a smart choice. That, that was smart. a smart choice. I actually think there's a way you could have even pushed into more magic realism. They could have actually made something of the, the beating heart. Like there's actually a way to do the slightly magical version of this 
and then the way to they do the They toyed non- with it in a way that was weird, where yeah. you've got these, like, right. the harp is going to come on, and the wind's going to blow, and yeah. we're, we're having a magic moment here. They do it, like, twice, but then they, they only do it twice. They don't give us the third time. Right. They don't quite pay, like... Mm-hmm. If you do three... This is just a, a rule for all you creatives out there. You got to do something three times for it to feel like it's intentional. If you do it twice... The audience will be confused. Like it, it was, was it's that, not quite there. Did you mean mm. for that to be magic, or was that this this movie had a few things? Not to be a snob, but just a few like Bonnie Hunt's a first time director, and maybe yeah, would be more mature in some of her choices later well, on. And as a first time director, pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Well, she she certainly cast the heck out of it, and that doesn't. Yeah. Hurt it. that's they say that's ninety percent of directing yeah. is casting, and hmm. she sure asked a whole lot of David Duchovny. And he did a pretty great job of delivering on a whole lot that was being asked of him. It's pretty insane when you think about it. Yeah. He's great. He's great. Well, okay. So I love rom-coms, particularly from this era. I think I have a lot of the same nostalgia that Jake had for them. I remember them being a specific help to me as a kid. I've talked about this kind of thing before on podcasts, but I, one of the reasons I got into movies was as some kind of a social what's the word handle handle something to talk about with people because i was a very very shy young person and so i was homeschooled and through fifth grade and then in sixth grade i found myself at school and i just had nothing that i wasn't into sports it's like what do i talk about with people and what i realized and i didn't this wasn't like it kind of vaguely came to me this was a cogent explicit thought was everybody has seen movies everybody has their favorites everyone and Let's be honest, girls have seen movies and girls have their favorites. And if you've seen all the movies, then you have something to talk about with everyone. So what I did is I went down to our Save a Lot video emporium and they had like a 10 for 10 deal and I would just get 10 for 10 or maybe it was 5 for 5. That sounds more realistic, but I would just spend my weekend catching up on everything. And so a lot of that would actually be my best friend's wedding or the wedding singer or whatever the newest Julia Roberts thing was because those were the things that you could actually talk to girls about. And so, yeah, I just like like a creepy sociopath, I watched things not for enjoyment but to to get some kind of a social handle, but I bet there's probably people out there that if they heard this would sympathize with they have their own version uh-huh. of it or that would just be their version cuz I think it's right. I think it's actually pretty common. And it worked. <laughs> it was a good thing to talk to people about. It was something to mature out of, obviously. But it, for better or worse, it, it was a useful handle. And I remember watching my best friend's wedding, particularly for that reason. Just like there's no, I remember just thinking like there's no way on earth I would actually be watching this, except I want to be able to. T- I hear everybody talking about it, and they think it's so funny, and they think Rupert Everett's so charming, and all this stuff. So <laughs> let's and that. Actually, it might be one of the best of the 90s rom-coms in its way, even though it started the whole gay gay best friend trope. Yeah, I really hated that one. I mean, it deconstructs the genre in a in an interesting way. So maybe that's why I like it. But uh, Julia Roberts is just nasty in that movie. But. Yeah, and that's the part that, I mean, it's just like, there's no objective reason to cheer for this movie's heroine. Like, it's just like, she's kind of evil. Well, that's actually, that's going to be part of my whole TED talk that I'm about to give on rom-coms. So, <laughs> I, I think that's actually an important turning point. 
<laughs> so you want me to just give my temp TED talk real quick? Yeah, the, the, ri- the rise yeah. and fall of Go the ahead. '90s rom com. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to start with the big idea up front instead of saving it for the for the last. What do these things have in common? This is my this is my thesis statement about what a '90s rom com. A '90s rom com, by the way, is an all encompassing term that includes '80s things like when Harry met Sally and includes into the oddies, but. We all know what I mean when I say 90s rom-com, and it is yep. basically something <laughs> that, thing. that rose in the 90s and then kind of fell in the oddies. But what do these things have in common? Leave it to Beaver, The Andy Griffith Show, Jane Austen, the first, let's say, maybe all Harry Potter books, but especially the first four or five Harry Potter books, boring old westerns on AMC or TCM, garbage like Fifty Shades of Grey, or even just erotic fiction in general that you can find on the internet, fan fiction. And the 90s rom-com. What do all these things have in common? This is, this is my, my premise. Can read the list one more time. Okay, he said, leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith, Harry Potter. Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Boring old, like, John Wayne westerns on TV. Uh, particularly of the later variety, like McClintock, or the ones that we always like to goof on. The silly ones. The ones that your dad really likes, not Jake's dad, but anybody's dad, the, the prototypical dad. And then more darkly, something like Fifty Shades of Grey. They all give people this one thing or do this one thing. Uh, Gilgan's Island does this, I'd say. Something to do with family, right? No, mm-hmm. not, no? Not, not quite. Hmm. More broad, it's more broad than that. Oh. I think that what they all do, unless anybody wants to take an awesome get, play what, what the host is thinking, guess here. Leave it to Beaver and Andy Griffith are kind of throwing me off here. So, well, so would it help if I say some of them are intended to do this and some of them just do it incidentally? Some of them did it when they first came out and some of them only do it with the benefit of hindsight and nostalgia. Huh. Well, okay, here's my premise what they all do is they create complete worlds that people just want to live in and. It's why if somebody really likes a rom-com, they go back to it again and again. It's why people just like to have Leave it to Beaver or Andy Griffith on. Like, they just want to... Andy Griffith's barely funny. Sorry to be provocative here, but Barney Fife is funny. Nothing else in that show is all that funny. What's great about that show is it's Mayberry. Mayberry. Yeah, people just, mm. just want to live there. And if you think about it coming out in the early 60s with all the social change, it's like people really, even when Andy mm. Griffith first came out, they wanted to go back to Mayberry. They wanted to live there. Jane Austen, I don't think she intended to create a world that people just wanted to live in. I think she just wanted to write fun, incisive, witty novels and make her little points and stuff. But people love using them that way. I love using them that way. We just, for the booking, read Pride and Prejudice again. And it's like, oh, it's just nice to live in this, this weird world where the only thing that matters is relationships. And it's, for me, it's not so much the carriage and balls and stuff like that, but it's just like, this world where friendship and relationship and talk mm-hmm. is everything. Right. And there's no jobs or anything that we as readers at least have to worry about. <laughs> we, we just go from party to party to fireplace to uh-huh. like it's even the scene that I think of is is the scene where uh, Elizabeth or no, not Elizabeth. What's her name? Yeah. She's just reading a book in, in the room with Darcy, like they're not in love yet. They're kind of circling each Darcy's other. Darcy's writing a letter. Darcy's writing a letter. She's reading a book. 
Miss Caroline Bingley's trying to create banner and tension and flirt with Darcy and yeah, that whole section where Elizabeth goes to the house because her sister's sick and stuff is a good is indicative of what I'm talking about. It's like they're not a plot thing. I mean, there's the will they won't they. There's actually a lot of plot things, but that's not the only reason that you like to read it. You do just kind of like to be by the fireside with these people, mm-hmm. and it reminds you of better times in your life when you had that experience it reminds you a little bit of the best of high school i hated high school but the best of high school when you just felt like free to hang out for a weekend with your friends and just talk about whatever and also everything had a heavy significance to you yeah exactly that happened exactly mm-hmm. exactly people by and large this is this is my premise at least people people by and large lack feeling of comfort as they get older and at all always all the time i mean this is such an obvious thing to say but we we desire comfort, we desire control, we do not have it, and so we like escaping into fantasy worlds where we have those two things in particular, just comfort and some measure of control. And it doesn't always have to be like, I like to imagine that I'm Superman or I like to imagine that I'm a wizard, especially for women. It can just be, what if the world was well-ordered? What if it was nice? What if we were all friends? That's actually what's potent what's powerful about a lot of romantic comedies is not really as much of course it's potent that you're getting the guy or that you're getting the girl but what else is potent is you're just living in this world where everybody's your friend and they're out for you and bad guys are obvious and stupid and easily dealt with and the lovers that are in the way are nice and sort of get out of the way just poor bill pullman and while you were sleeping he's just like i know you're not into me meg ryan i'll I'll go. I'll be by myself. I, Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Uh, Not Meg Ryan. No, and Wally. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I said the wrong thing. It's the one with Tom. The first oh, one with Sleepless Tom in Seattle. Sleepless okay. in Seattle. Yeah. But Pullman plays the, the second lead in that. And he just gets I'm, out. He's just I'm a lost. nice guy that gets out of the way. I mean, I think Harry Potter's like that for people. Like, they don't even care about the plot. Like, it, it, to some degree, I think there's a certain disappointment for a certain kind of reader. A disappointment sets in once Voldemort really starts reigning because it just becomes a chosen one myth which is great but the real appeal of harry potter was just going to class and hanging out at hogwarts and being in this big spooky castle with your friends and having little adventures and stuff like that there is something really potent about those first few harry potter books in their way that i don't think she loses as she goes on but of necessity it becomes it changes it changes and it for my son Everything got cooler and more awesome. And for my daughter, she's questioning whether she likes Harry Potter. Yeah, well, I think that hmm. that's, that's exactly right. And d- different ages, they would have hit it different ways too. Like an, an adult is ready to get to like, hey, life isn't just hanging out in castles with your friends. But I think it's appropriate for little kids to like, you could argue that Rawl, one of Rawl, the genius things Rowling does is actually chart a maturation process for Harry Potter that takes him out of that world of comfort and control. But that also kind of deflates the fantasy a little bit because what was fun was the comfort and control. To go a little darker, I would say you have to understand that that's why a lot of people look at pornography or read erotic fiction or read things. It's not actually just about the thrill or the, you know, the obvious reason that you would think somebody would read or look at something like that. It's about they just feel like their life is out of control and they just like to live in a world that's ordered where the girl really likes them or where they have control over their sexuality, even in a dark 
and depraved way they just they just like that and so in, in a way in a weird way it's actually the same reason that people watch the andy griffith griffith show like i don't like the world that i live in i the world that i live in feels stupid and weird and mayberry feels nice it it sounds like you're making kind of the same point that Michael Shaban made in The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. You read that, right? Yeah. Uh, did you read that one, Jake? No. So, he has a big point about escapism, mm-hmm. which is that it's good, basically. Yeah. Not, not, not that it's good to excess, but that of, of course people want to escape <laughs> into a place that's better through comic books and fiction and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That- so, th- that escapist instinct is not, is not just to be despised. Simply. Well, if we were the Gospel Coalition, of course, we. this is the part where we'd say, like, we all have a longing for... (laughs) We'd quote the C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself a desire that cannot be met here on earth, then it must be that I'm made for a Uh, uh, a different world. Yeah. Hogwarts. (laughs) Or... uh, (laughs) Which I think is a little heavy-handed, but it it is of the Gospel Coalition. But I think there's probably something to that. I mean... There's something. And what I'm not doing here is saying it's entirely bad for us to watch rom-coms or want to escape into Mayberry for a half an hour. I think if you order your lives around that, it's bad. You have to question your love of rom-coms, for example. If you're somebody who just goes back to your favorite 90s rom-com again and again and again, as people do, and you just want to live there. These are the kind of movie that, like you said with your sister, and I'm not saying anything one way or about your sister, but just anyone who loves Return to Me, probably they've seen it a dozen times. It's not that they're questioning like, oh, is David Duchovny going to get Minnie Driver this time? It's, right. I just want to be at that restaurant with those old people that are so supportive and fun mm-hmm. and cute and life just feels hard and stupid and challenging and relationships aren't easy and old people are <laughs> mean and <laughs> my romance is hard and y- you get married and you have to work at it and stuff but oh man i just i want i want to live in this little this little world where the biggest problem is will he be mad that i have his wife's heart i've never had to deal with that problem that's a good that's a nice that's a nice movie problem so when jake says the supporting characters are what he loves about rom-coms i think there's something profound about that i think that's probably what a lot of people actually love Hmm. about rom-coms it's the same reason that we love a sitcom like friends i just want to be part of a world where i can walk into a coffee shop and there's a bunch of people who are there to talk about everybody knows your name everybody knows your name yeah it's what's makes me tear (laughs) up if i'm in the wrong mood or i've had a drink or something and i watch that cheers opening intro. song yeah, yeah it's, well will they run through all those scenes of boston in the 20s yeah. or something like that and it's like everybody knows your name yeah <laughs> it, it's beautiful it's it's a beautiful it's a great conceit it's a beautiful fantasy yeah, it sets up that whole show and it's a huge part of why that show was so beloved and then why people were devastated when it was canceled because they felt like all those people were their friends right and norm was there and I mean, a more modern uh, example is probably The Office, which I don't love personally, but people, I don't hate it either. People just, it, it, they know all the jokes. They, they've seen all the memes. They, they know what Dwight's going to say, whatever. They, they just want to go and be with their friends at The Office. Life feels a little simpler, mm-hmm. whatever. Everybody has that. I mean, Ben could talk about his sci-fi novels growing up. <laughs> I, I could talk. Lord of the Rings was my preferred world of choice and my, and my cozy, like safe, ordered Oh, this is the battle of good versus evil and 
Yeah, it's ordered enough. It's not actually that murky. Everything's very clear. Everything's very clear and it's very comforting and reassuring. And I don't think that's to be despised, like you're saying. Right. Well, that's what Peter Jackson doesn't get because he's like, everything has to be action. Everything has to keep moving. Everything has to be suspense, which I understand that instinct in a movie maker to some degree. But the entire appeal of Lord of the Rings is actually doo-doo-doo. We're walking along. This is fun. I'm with my buddies. We're on an adventure. We're going to sleep under the magical Lord of the Rings stars now. And there's weird little things off to the side. Uh-huh. Of, it's the journey more than it is the destination, actually, in some ways, for a certain kind of reader, at least. Uh-huh. What would it be to just be on the road with Gandalf and weird, crazy stuff's happening? And who even cares what happens to the the world? So I think... Yeah, I don't think that it's to be despised, but I think it's to be it's to be self-analyzed, it's to be questioned, it's to be like at a certain point you had to grow past Lord of the Rings and at a certain point people have to grow past romantic comedies and you can't use them as crutches and obviously something like 50 shades of gray or worse you just can't use at all. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to understand the whole package that a romantic comedy is giving you is more than just wouldn't it be nice if you could get a guy? It's wouldn't it be nice if you could live in a world of, especially with the 90s, it's like, wouldn't it be nice if you could live in the wor- in a world of old show tunes and the American songbook and coffee and a certain kind of warm creature comfort and not worry too much about your job. Like your job is just hanging out with your goofy, quirky, eccentric friends. I mean, people like to make fun of it, but I don't think you should make fun of it. I think it's just part of the genre. It's always an architect and the woman always runs an art gallery or is an artist or they always have these ridiculous rich people mm-hmm. jobs where they don't have to worry about anything. J- Julie Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding is a food critic. It's like, it, you can't, you don't have to like that, I guess, but understand if you're criticizing it, you're criticizing the entire form. Yeah, the point was never realism. Right. Yeah. It, it would, it would just, it would make this it's like you don't want in Jane Austen to read about how did they go to the bathroom or something like that. You don't want to know what Darcy's doing in between falling in love with Elizabeth unless it bears somehow on their relationship. The entire point, the entire appeal is that Jane Austen has stripped away everything that has to do with that doesn't have to do with these characters and their relationships and let that one aspect breathe in a way that's really appealing and and once again, with any one of these properties that I've mentioned, some of them entirely intend to do that. Like a sitcom doesn't really exist for any reason besides to just create a world, especially those old, not funny sitcoms like I Dream of Genie or something like it's like we don't even have jokes. We just want to live in a really comfortably cozy, hermetically sealed world where everything's works out at the end and everybody's having fun. And then some things like Jane Austen or maybe Harry Potter or what have you, they accidentally become that or it's only part of their intended appeal or it's an act or like with John Wayne Western, that there's an interesting example. They start out as movies where people want to tell specific stories and then 50 years later, your grandpa is nostalgic for that lifestyle, nostalgic for the the actual era of the real John, both the era that John Wayne pretends to be in and the era that John Wayne lived himself as an actor, lived in, nostalgic for the values or the perceived values of that world. Just the, like John Wayne in his early career isn't intending to create a world that's comfortable to live in. It just happens to be one that people respond to and still want to live in. And then somewhere in the 60s, John Wayne realizes, actually, 
I can just create a world that people like to live in. And he starts to do it intentionally. And those are the movies we goof on, like North to Alaska or McClintock. Or look, McClintock's a great example. Yeah, it's got those wife spanking scenes and it's got a, a mud fight. Other than that, nothing happens in that movie. Nothing happens. We just hang out with John Wayne and his friends. Like, it's, 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 it's weird. It's crazy. He throws a girl into a pond. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. Like, yeah, we, we have a couple big slapstick moments. And then in between that, we are literally just spending time with John Wayne and his friends. And people ate it up. It was like the biggest moneymaker of the world because people just wanted to spend time with in the world of John Wayne and his friends. And to this day, there's a certain kind of person that just wants that. I mean, they'd almost rather watch the cheesy later era John Wayne movies than they would the early ones like the or the mid, the, the, the classics like Red River or The Searchers. It's like, that's too much plot. Like, I, actually, I just want to heavy. Out. It's too heavy. It's yeah. trying to say something. It's trying to say mm-hmm. something. What I want to do is just watch a John Wayne movie, which is something comforting in the background, something that just gives us control. And you could also make an argument about the difference between men and women. I mean, I, when 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 boys look for comfort and control, they want stories of like, I beat up the bad guys, and so I have control. Uh, girls, I think, I have my best friends like me, and and a dude is interested in me. So that's my big thesis statement. For that reason, I do not trace the history of the rom com back to Shakespeare, because I don't think Shakespeare, by and large, is actually doing that or Aristophanes or Oscar Wilde or any of these people that wrote the great romantic plays and stories of the past. I don't think by and large what they were doing, I think they were writing about romance in some cases. I don't think they were just creating a romantic world for you to live in. You could argue this or that thing, but for me, I do not see Shakespeare doing the same thing that a Meg Ryan movie actually does. I do not see a lineage there. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people just like to live in the world of Midsummer's Night's Dreams. or Maybe that was part of the appeal. It's, well, it's different because a play is just going to be, is going to... I think they like living at the Globe Theater. Yeah, yeah. that's probably true. Okay. And I think that they were glad for the next Shakespeare joint to go see... Yeah, it's like Shakespeare's, the entire oeuvre of Shakespeare almost exists as a world. Yeah. But just going to see... But it's a world of dialogue. It's a world of lines. It's not... It's a world of high drama and comedy and philosophy all mingled together so that there's something for everybody and pretty much everything. Right. But there's something always happening. I just don't see it as doing the same, much of the same work. Maybe this or that Shakespeare play, you could argue has some of that like uh, well any rom-com uh, yeah. i mean rom-coms love to steal conceits from shakespeare yeah well right? that's that's so the, the taming of the shrew that's is the, thing. the most common rom-com or one of the most common rom-com conceits of all time I, I think all stories do it to some extent i don't think you can get away from that they all just order the world for you and the ones you like you're going to tell around the fire a million times right and you're going to quote the same, you're going to go back to the Globe Theater and see the same play a million times, maybe yeah. in, in the in the cheap seats standing. Uh, and, and and everything does that. So I guess that, that flattens everything. So tracing the lineage is not even the point at that point. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not that, I just think in the 90s, we finally reach a type of genre where we are intentionally doing this. We are leaving space. Uh-huh. For okay. people to just live in the world. So I would even differentiate a 90s rom-com from th- some of the things we've talked about, like Philadelphia Story 
or definitely um, it happened one night right because those are plot driven movies about characters doing things they they happen to contain all the tropes and a lot of the plot mechanics it happened one night especially had the whole like giant last minute misunderstanding and the characters racing to to meet each other it really does just do rom-com 101 and yet i would argue it doesn't actually do intentionally at least the same kind of work that a Meg Ryan movie does where you're just kind of hanging out with Meg Ryan for a couple hours. I realize there's a lot of overlap and you can make arguments either way with a lot of this stuff. I'm just trying to differentiate a little bit what a 90s rom-com does. The other thing that makes it weird is like I said, you have stories that weren't intended to create a world, but there are people that just like to live in black and white TCM old movie land. And so for them, Philadelphia story is their Mayberry. It is their Hogwarts. It is their. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, what's fun about uh, some of those nineties rom-coms that does do a good job of capturing the vibe of the time, capturing a little bit of the zeitgeist, even if it's uh, amped up to 11, because you're, you're getting it in a small dose. Anyway, if you go back to something like clueless or 10 things I hate about you, you get a certain 90s vibe that is just encapsulated. Right. It's a little shot of... Well, and we're all the right oh, yeah. age where just, oh, mismatched tops and skirts. That reminds me of high school. It reminds... Like, all, every one of many driver's outfits right. in the movie we're talking about today, it's just like, shoot me back, rocket me back to a certain Why time are you wearing place. two patterned... A patterned top with a patterned skirt? Yeah. The... Because that was cool. I guess. Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of the bohemian look of the time. Yeah. So, actually, I think the true progenitor of rom-coms, as I define them, worlds that people want to not just live in, but luxuriate in, I think is Jane Austen. And, And I wouldn't argue that she was trying to be, but I would argue that everyone from the moment she released her books has always, for better or worse, taken them that way, especially Pride and Prejudice. People just want to live there. They read it well, over and you over Well, still and over to this again. day, you have people like try to recreate scenes from Pride and Prejudice for proposals and yeah. weddings and things like that. And people are obsessed with the era. They are obsessed with the, I mean, why wouldn't you be? It's, it's, it's a fantasy. Like it wasn't actually at the time, but the way that we think about it, the fake mm-hmm. way that we think about it, nobody did any work and they just sat around and they dressed really nicely everybody got to dress up all the time and they could all dance and they all went to balls and it wasn't it was a very elegant simple time where men were men and women were women and romantic tension wasn't hypersexualized. and yeah people have always been nostalgic for that time Rudyard kipling wrote a, a short story about world war one soldiers who had a secret society called the Jainites and the story is this, this World War I soldier detective. He's trying to figure out what this secret conspiracy of Jainites is and the whole con- humorous conceit is that it's not anything more profound than just a bunch of guys Jane who... Jane Austen fan club. J- Jane Austen fan club, but people who are doing exactly what I'm talking about. Like the reason that they're, they tell themselves we get up every day to go fight in the trenches is because we're trying to preserve the last vestiges of this this world that Jane Austen wrote about and it's falling apart around us. But if there's anything left of it, of the Shire, then we have to go sit in the trenches again. 
So I think Jane Austen does that. Obviously, the women's pictures of the 30s, the 40s, your Philadelphia stories, your happened one night, they, they do have some of that. But, but I, don't think, um, I don't think until we get to about when Harry met Sally, anyone quite realizes the power of just, let's just hang back and not do anything. Let's just live there for a while. And we can actually just spend time on the clothes and on the espressos and on the autumnal walks and on the, like, nothing has to be happening. I don't think it happened one night is trying to do that. I think those people are just trying to tell witty, fun stories about romance. I'm having trouble fully buying into the conceit because when you bring in it happened one night, it is just a lot of the tension of that couple. Right. And if you go back to Remember Me. Return to Me? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> go back to the song from Coco. <laughs> there's a whole, there's this bomb under the table for the whole length of the, of the movie that they're right. dancing around. And that's, I mean, that's a very plot-ish conceit. Yeah, I think. What's going to happen when they find out, is she going to tell them and then what's going to happen? And they wait and wait and play with it and toy with it over and over and that's a that's a plotish. well the fact is any any episode of andy griffith is gonna have is barney fife gonna ruin the parade and every harry potter novel is up to something all plot conceits and traps and setups and payoffs you wouldn't read lord of the rings if they weren't trying to destroy the ring i agree with that 100 percent. you always need something to pull you through the story jane austen is actually a master of suspense Right. Nobody reads Jane Austen if they're not wondering whether Elizabeth and Darcy are going to end up at the end and if everything isn't driving towards that, even the quietest moments. I, I agree with that 100%. Maybe a better way to say what I'm trying to articulate is there are certain stories that are designed to allow you, or they accidentally allow you to live in the in-between moments and to glory in the in-between moments in a way that not every other story does some stories are all about the plot and the principal appeal is the plot you've got mail nobody doesn't know that meg ryan and tom hanks are going to end up together like it's not right it's not it's not, every rom-com as we know that they're going to get together in the end the question's not whether but how and we even know the beats we even can we can look at our clock or, or we don't even have to look at our watch we anyone who's seen a few of these has an internal sort of clock and they know, okay, here's the part where they're going to break up for a little while. Like right. we're, we're, we're deep into the second act. There's going to be a big problem. They're going to separate yeah. and then they're going to have to find their way to back together. And if it's somebody running through an airport, so much the better. We know these beats and we're in, and we're comfortable with these beats and, and we like to live there. Yeah. Nobody reads Harry Potter. If there's not Voldemort, if there's not something propelling, the motion of the story. But but maybe the difference between Harry Potter being a phenomenon, being the most iconic thing, people getting tattoos, people just loving Harry Potter, is that there's this fully built out world that people just want to live in. You cannot deny that there isn't a type of story that just invites you into a world. And some of the success of all the things that I've mentioned is is just that. Just isn't it nice to to live there? I got it. Here's the refined version of what I'm saying. Every restaurant you go to, there's going to be a meal. And if there's not a meal, it's not a restaurant. So that's the plot. Okay. 
your favorite restaurant that you go back to again and again and again, you don't just go for that meal. You go for the ambiance, you go for the people, you go for the wait staff, you go for everything. And I'm saying some stories are more designed that way or whether they're designed or not, they work that way. A Harry Potter actually, yeah, we need the meal. We need the Voldemort plot. But there's lots of people that would be happy to just know what's on the menu at the the Bertle Beatty's uh, Butter Beer Emporium or sorry, I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. So I maintain that there is a difference between what Shakespeare is doing and what Meg Ryan is doing, the kind of world that a 90s rom-com is inviting you in is one where if we're going with my analogy, the meal is fine, but actually the meal is the same as a million other restaurants. And you've had this meal before. It's mashed potatoes. It's comfort food. What you're there for is the ambiance. What you're there for is the little touches. So for better or worse, for a lot of people, I think the 90s just represent a time of general economic prosperity and a happier time where everything felt a lot more unified and mm-hmm. felt a lot more uh, like there's a lot more tension or a lot less tension rather in our lives. Yeah. Things were a simpler time. Maybe it was just because we were kids and that's just how it felt, but you didn't feel like everything was us and them and that the world was at war with, or that America was at war with itself. And in a pre nine eleven world, Right. Everything just felt or seems to have felt a lot safer and it's like, well, there just wasn't a lot to have at the heart of our dramas and conflict or narratives, but romance, will they, won't they? Mm-hmm. Will I get the girl when I get the girl? Will I be accepted as one of the cool kids? I think there's something to that. I think you could mark 9-11 as a line of demarcation between like Meg, Meg Ryan and Julia Roberts are the big stars, big female stars of the 90s, and we pay them millions of dollars to live out these fantasies. And I don't think it's all 9-11, but after 9-11, that's when things start to wind down um, for that for that whole genre. And by 2010 or so, the rom-com, as we know it, is essentially dead, <clears throat> which we'll get to. I have some other thoughts about that. But yeah, I think that's true. One of the reasons maybe I didn't say that is because I don't think of the 90s that way. I don't think of 9-11 personally as much of a line of demarcation, actually. To me, the world was always a horrible garbage place and 9-11 just kind of wasn't, was something that happened far away that proved the world was still a garbage place. We don't have to spend this podcast litigating Nathan's 90s and early 80s psychology but I think you're right. That is definitely part of the nostalgia. And it is part of the fun of watching the movie that we're talking about today. It seems like where you guys get stuck is actually when I try to create a lineage. Like, like nobody mm-hmm. isn't arguing that the appeal of a Meg Ryan movie isn't partially just living in Meg Ryan land. Like, I think the reason I was trying to differentiate between what, what like a Nora Ephron, what a Meg Ryan movie was would do and some other things, something in the 40s, something in the 30s. I think they perfected a certain kind of intentional formula in the 90s coming out of When Harry Met Sally, which is how much can we actually strip away? Like how much plot do we actually need? It turns out not a lot. 
We actually don't need a whole Philadelphia story worth of twists and turns. They get in the way. We actually don't need a whole, it happened one night of twists and turns. We don't need more than a premise, a location, a cute starlet, and a hunky star with some chemistry. Like We can actually strip away more and more and more and more to just refine this formula. And so the difference between what Capra's doing even is Capra still feels like he needs to have a good script. And Ginger Rogers still feels like she needs to have good dance numbers. And even Swing Time, like it still feels like it needs to have a good script. One of the things we like about those old movies, the ones that have lasted at least, is how sturdy the construction is. And what what I think they kind of figure out in the 90s that I think does make it a special or unique time for this genre, for the genre of the women's picture, let's say, is we actually don't need hardly anything at all. We can just have two stars and we can just have them hang out. That can be enough. It's a difference of degrees, but I would say there's a difference between that and almost anything that came before. I mean, in the same way that Wizard of Earthsea, there's all these things that did all the same basic stuff, the same bag of things that J.K. Rowling does. But then J.K. Rowling's just like, let's live here. Let's, Let's just let it breathe a little bit. I mean, people always criticize those books for being so big, but that's the dumbest. That's just so, so silly. Kids love that those books are as big as they are. It's Yeah, they love to live in it. And then it feels like it, and because it's so fun to live in, they actually propel our, and the plot continues to dangle in front of them. They get to come away feeling like they've had a huge accomplishment and they have. Yeah. I mean- Persevering through a six or eight hundred page book is no small feat at 13 years old. And think of the confidence it gives them to tackle anything. Maybe it discourages them when things aren't as propulsive as Harry Potter, but there's a lot of virtue in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Well, one of these days we'll have to find an excuse to talk more Harry Potter intentionally. I don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll go back to the books on the book name. Maybe we'll do the movies. I guess we could do the next Grendelwald thing when it comes mm. out for this very podcast. Fantastic Beasts, I think you mean. Yeah, Fantastic Beasts. <clears throat> and where to find them. The uh, Secrets of Dumbledore. Whatever you want to say about 90s rom-coms, let me give you a brief history ending in their demise. And I have a couple of theories on why they died. So the specific type of movie that we're talking about really begins with When Harry Met Sally, which is a Rob Reiner joint. We talked about him at length in our Princess Bride episode. He famously had coffee with Nora Ephron, who was a bright, witty member of the school of new journalism that included people like Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson, these people that would bring their, that that were journalists, but they would bring their subjective experience to their reporting and talk about like just just put you in their brains and in their mm-hmm. hearts and uh tell you like what what it was like to be on the campaign trail with so and so and use all these novelistic techniques Nora Ephron's one of those people she wrote a very famous humorous essay called something like what it was like to not have breasts or something she she wrote about how her breasts didn't develop ever really how she was always kind of a flat-chested woman and how that eventually drove her into therapy and it's considered one of the great humorous essays of the 20th century. It appeared at first in Esquire ma- magazine, I want to say in 1977, made a huge splash, was, you know, 
all these people. She finally said something that we've all felt as women all these years, bah, 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 one of these kinds of things. So she's a humorist and a new journalist and kind of enfant terrible, however you say that, one of the bohemians of her time. And uh, so is Rob Reiner and they team up or they, they get together in a coffee shop of all places to talk about potential projects. Reiner has something he wants to pitch to her. He pitches it. She says, I'm not interested. They say, okay, we'll go our separate ways. But they have a nice coffee and they end up talking about the differences between men and women. And they have a nice conversation and they've both come out of bitter divorces. Like they're both at the end of these nasty divorces. So they're both just like, here's what So Rob Reiner's like, here's what I think about women. And she's like, here's what I think about men. And they have a lot of fun talking about it. This is in, this is circa 1985 or so. And then by 1989, they've made a movie about the differences between men and women somewhere in the making of that movie fortune smiles on all of us and rob reiner gets remarried and suddenly feels very optimistic about love and relationships and so of course they at the last minute change the movie so that harry and sally end up together and the other thing about that movie is they wanted to fill it with songs from the american songbook but they couldn't afford any of them so they just got a guy named henry connick jr who wasn't anybody to sing harry connick or sorry harry, harry yeah, yeah not henry connick harry connick jr uh, they got a named guy named henry connick jr who really wasn't anybody uh, <laughs> and still is not still is not <laughs> to sing all these songs and of course the album goes triple platinum and so we've basically created a movie where everything's stripped away nothing happens in that movie there is a plot will harry and sally get together it is propulsive but the movie is really just does just coast on the charm of Meg Ryan and and Billy his face, the, the very charming Billy Crystal, as we litigated on the Princess Bride. It's a lot episode. more charming than when Harry met Sally. Yes, he is. It's a charming movie. It's got some. Which you know, I've not seen that movie. You've not seen that movie. That is no. a movie I actually have seen. Amazing. That's... It's just like you want to know why? It's because I don't like Billy Crystal. Actually, <laughs> this was despite defending him on the other, and it feels everything about it has always felt mean enough. Like there's an uh, undertone of aggression and meanness about that movie that has made me. That's fascinating. Turn, I mean, turned me off to it entirely. And I, I've never really wanted to watch it, even though, I mean, I've seen parts of it. I've seen famous scenes from it. Mm -hmm. I'll have what she's having. Gee, yeah. I wonder what scene you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> me and me and Meredith were dating and we watched that movie. We did a virtual, like she was, we, we long distance dated. So. She had the movie on in one city. I had the movie on in the other city, and we were on the phone about it, which is something uh -huh. that Harry and Sally do in wow. the movie. They talk about Casablanca, which would have been a much better movie to talk about. Okay. If you haven't seen the movie, folks, I assume probably lots of people have seen that movie. It's pretty vulgar. It's got some famous vulgarity that Jake's referencing, so you don't necessarily have to see it. But Meg Ryan is peak adorable Meg Ryan. I mean, she's just like... star. The star yeah. wattage is off the charts, burning with the power of a thousand suns. Meg Ryan makes that movie she was actually up for buttercup and rob reiner said eh, william goldman wrote the most beautiful woman in the world not the most adorable but if i'm ever doing a movie about the most adorable woman in the world you'll you'll be my first phone call and she was and rightly so because when harry met sally was a smash hit when harry met sally is also if i may completely in the lineage of woody allen it is just a, yeah. a it is just a populist redo in the same it's like what's that band i always make fun of yellow and all that crap Coldplay. Uh, yeah it's like what Coldplay is to radiohead we're just going to take all your formulas and do them for the people instead of 
for mm-hmm. nerds in their basements. That that is that is all when Harry Met Sally is to 1977's Annie Hall, which is a Diane Keaton and Woody Allen movie. Woody Allen's big breakthrough movie where he won an Oscar for Best Picture, beating a little indie called Star Wars in the process, which probably wouldn't happen if we had it at all to do over again, especially because Woody Allen's more or less canceled at this point. But that is a movie that exists entirely in Woody Allen's head. It's all about his relationships. It's all about his neuroses with sex. It's basically just an extended series of dialogue scenes between him and Diane Keaton. Mm -hmm. And it's very funny and has a lot of memorable dialogue and stuff like that. And it coasts a lot on their chemistry, but it's doing all the same things, all the, all the kind of, I'm neurotic about, I'm a neurotic Jewish person who wants to find love, but is obsessed with sex and doesn't think it can work with anyone. He famously starts that movie by quoting the Groucho Marx joke. I wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. And he says, that's, that's how I feel about women. And he defined a generation. Every, every man relates to that one way or another. And so Annie Hall, very important movie, not worth seeing really if you haven't seen it, but, and, but it was influential. I mean, it basically created Judd Apatow, like any modern comic or comedic movie that questions sexuality and self-deprecates manhood owes itself to, to Woody Allen. He invented that whole, instead of doing vaudeville jokes, let's actually dig into our own neuroses and relationships and be honest and also funny about them uh, it's just like woody allen changed comedy forever so anyway that's Annie hall when harry met sally is just the diet caffeine free happy ending for the people version of that but it's a smash hit in 1989 really sets the, the sets the template for for the 1990s uh rom-com nora efron is the writer nora efron is like this is great. I'm just going to hire make I'm but I want to direct my own movies and not have to worry about what Rob's going to do. So, I'm going to get Meg Ryan to be my avatar and we're going to make Sleepless in Seattle in 1993 and we're going to make You've Got Mail in 1988 and we're going to fill up the soundtracks with old standards and we're going to get Tom Hanks to play the dude instead of Billy Crystal, which is arguably something of an upgrade and <laughs> we're going to make I mean, you've got mail might be my favorite of those rom of the movies that are doing what I'm describing of the let's just hang out in a upscale New York world that never existed. And it's always kind of autumn and we're walking around and making witty banter and talking to our attractive friends about our non-issue problems like you've got mail is a classic of of that genre, I would say. And Sleepless in Seattle for my money is not Sleepless in Seattle is weird. Because they don't get together until the very end, and it's just a, it's impossible conceit. I don't know. You guys, you guys like those movies? I haven't seen Sleepless. You've never seen Sleepless? I think of Sleepless in Seattle as one of those movies I've seen a hundred times and don't know that I've ever enjoyed it. Right. Didn't, didn't leave enough of a impression. I mean, it's left an impression. I have all kinds of scenes and things from the movie. It's just one of those movies that's kind of, it is inevitable. So you just, you watched it a billion times and... Yeah, because it was supposed to be good, but did I ever actually like it or enjoy it? I don't don't know that I ever really did. Yeah, It's got any number of of scenes that last and that stick into your head. Like I was talking to Ben and Megan about yesterday. I don't know that there's a single Christmas that goes by where I don't have Meg Ryan in my head saying horses, 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 Mm -hmm. or any number of other little 
It's something that's just like, yeah, Meg Ryan is adorable and cute mm-hmm. and they get a lot out of her in those types of movies, but yeah, she does. She does good. Well, okay. So going very quickly through the history of the nineties rom-com, there's another movie that hits in 1990, which is a fascinating movie to learn about. There's a whole chapter in this book about it. This movie starts as a dark drama about prostitution Pretty in, woman. in Los I Angeles. Knew I knew it before you even said prostitution. Yeah. Right? And the ending they changed is, the whole movie. It's crazy. The ending of the movie originally is Richard Gere. The Richard Gere character throws the prostitute out of his car, drives off angrily, never sees her again. She goes back to her coked out ways. And the movie ends with kind of an existential. She's driving to Disneyland with her best friend, the even more about to die and horribly down the drain prostitute. The whole movie is conceived and written as this dark, not like just a dark prostitution drama. And at no point does anyone ever just say, we're changing this to a rom-com. It's just a series of weird accidents and choices. And they're like, we have to lighten it up here and do this here. And, you know, it's a Disney movie released under one of their companies that they released things at the time that wasn't called Disney. I forget which one. Hmm. But so just Jeffrey Katzenberg, the evil genius of 90s cinema, Jeffrey Katzenberg is involved. And he's like, lighten it up, take some stuff out. Let's have her have a complete set of teeth. Let's let's make the Julia Roberts character uh, new to the prostitution game. Like not, she hasn't mm-hmm. been in it for 10 years. She's putting herself through college. She's just started, but they keep making little decisions here and there and here and there to the point where Julia Roberts says she didn't know what kind of movie it was going to be when she saw it for the first time put together. And then she's like, oh, we made a, a popular romantic comedy. That's weird. And the movie, if you watch it, it's not, I don't love that movie and I don't know why anyone would, but it's, it's bears some of those scars. Like there's places where it feels like it wants to be darker, meaner, meaner. Yeah. And then, and then it just kind of hmm. gives that up and turns into the silliest romantic comedy. <laughs> He's going to show up on his white horse, baby. Yeah. 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 White limousine. Never seen not it. Not seen it. No. It's a movie that i it's like Dirty Dancing. I don't know why I grew up with it, but I definitely did. Well, Jake, nobody puts baby in a corner. Well, yeah. Let's, let's be honest. Never saw that one either. Terrible, terrible movies, both yeah. of them, I would say. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially Dirty Dancing. But yeah. Well, I mean, they hired Julia Roberts, which who was quite vivacious. That alone kind of swings the movie towards like Julia Roberts of that era can't play too bedraggled. No, she's um, got to play sweet down home you know girl next door right and so that movie comes out in 1990 it's a huge hit as a romantic comedy and disney didn't even know that's what they were buying when they when they and and i don't think that that's just that's such a good story that it feels like hollywood lore but if you if you read the story and look at the documentation look at the original script that's how it was so we have the rise of Meg Ryan. We have the rise of Julia Roberts. We have the rise of Bullock while you were sleeping. 95. Great a movie that still kind of holds up pretty well. And then you have through the 90s, like these movies are some of the top money makers. They can open a weekend. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just a totally different era. It's weird. And we, we've gotten so sophisticated about the genre that we can have things like My Best Friend's Wedding that is just a deconstruction of the genre. It is just like, what if Julia Roberts doesn't get the guy at the end and she does all the terrible things to get the guy that 
a girl would usually do in these movies, but we play them realistically enough that the audience questions whether they like her or not. And you can argue whether it's a successful hmm. version of that or not. They just think they made a movie that ultimately doesn't work because they were playing with it too much. Well, well, the interesting thing about that movie... It's not fun to watch, and that's the whole point. Like, you can have a deconstruction that's fun right. to watch, and this is not a fun-to-watch deconstruction. I don't know why people like it. Well, I will... I, I, I could talk about this movie as a way to wrap up, because I think this movie actually illustrates why the genre starts to die in the early oddies. The success of this movie actually provides an interesting counterbalance to why the genre dies. Because what happens is they film this movie, they show it to an audience, the audience hates it. They feel exactly the way that you do, Jake. Like, Julia Roberts is just mean. We love Cameron Diaz. We want her to be with the guy. Julia Roberts is standing in the way. She's just being a you-know-what the whole time. We don't like this. And the people, the makers of the movie are like, oh, no, what are we going to do? We have to reshoot the whole thing. And then they realize, actually, the audience was with us 95% of the time. It's just the ending that they don't like. And the way the movie originally ended was Julia Roberts apologizes for trying to ruin Cameron Diaz's life. And then karma balances things for Julia Roberts by, in a good, in a heroic way, because she's made the sacrifice, a hunky guy comes up to her and asks her to dance. And we realized Julia Roberts actually is going to get a man now that she's made the sacrifice. And the audience hated that. They actually wanted to see Julia Roberts punished. Yeah, they wanted to see her pay. And so they realized, wait a second, let's just go back and let's make Julia Roberts suffer more. And then people, so they go back, they reshoot the final scene with Cameron Diaz and have Cameron Diaz really tell Julia Roberts off and tell her exactly what she's, how nasty she is. The audience likes that. And they provide no hunk. Julia Roberts is alone at the end of the movie. She has her gay best friend, Rupert Everett, show up to provide some comfort. But she has basically failed in her mission and we have, gone, we have punished her a lot more. And suddenly the audience is okay with the movie. Jake's not, but the audience is. And I think whether you like the movie or not, that can actually help propel the final part of this, this context because here's why I think, here's my theory why rom-coms based on, have died. The, re, the, guy, the book that I read, the guy said they've died because they haven't changed with the times because they haven't become gay friendly because they didn't do LGB. I think it's exactly the opposite. The genre did try and change with the times and therefore it died. I think the genre is inherently and undeniably conservative. Like you just, it has to, in order for the story to work, it has to be conservative in order for it to feel satisfying. Yeah. To the point where if Julia Roberts is going to be a shrew, the audience is going to on a test screen screening be like, nah, we need to see her get punished. Like we're not... We're not happy if you reward the most popular, likable act. You'd think, of course, we have to reward Julia Roberts. She's Julia Roberts. No. She doesn't get points in this movie for being Julia Roberts because Mm -hmm. she's playing somebody that we don't like. Right. She's playing a shrew and shrews get tamed. That's how this works. If you, I mean, not to be too gospel coalition-y about it, but if you think about the the rom-com, it presupposes that happiness for a woman is found in the right man. It tends to reward men for going after what they want with strength and intentionality tends to reward women for being soft or for becoming soft or for having their inner shrew tamed. It's heteronormative. As materialistic as it is, as much as it trades on upper crust materialism, it always presupposes that that's not enough, that you have to find some kind of emotional, relational, spiritual, something or other, not in a really profound way, but at least 
it's going to nod towards that. If you wanted to be really gospel coalition, you could say it's built on the mystery of Christ and the church. You know, it's just built on sexuality as God made it. And you cannot escape from that. That's the entire appeal of the, of the genre. That's, that's in the bones. It's in the, the structure. To the point where, as the Audis are trying to cling on to it, we have Judd Apatow come along. The last gasp of the rom-com is knocked up and things like that, a 40-year-old version. And those stories, as crude, vulgar, and man-hating as they are, are always about man-children who have to grow up. Seth Rogen can't just stay stay being Seth Rogen after he knocks the girl up. He has to man up, get a job, get his life together so that he's worthy of Katherine Heigl. Same thing for a lot of the Judd Apatow things. That's, that's Judd Apatow's whole formula is I'm going to allow you to enjoy hanging out with man children. And then because I understand how movies and stories work, because I'm savvy enough, I'm, I'm not going to assert that you can actually be a man child your whole life. You can only be one for two thirds of this movie. And it's a smart formula. And it kind of worked. But then we got past that. And I think they really did start, people started to mock the formula, be ironic about it, want to find real ways to subvert basic truths at the center of rom-coms. And the only way, place you can really do, there's two places where the rom-com lives on. It lives on kind of ironically in Hallmark movies and Netflix cheapo movies where the movies are so undeniably silly and chintzy that we can just do all the tropes and we don't have to yeah, apologize for make them. Make Keanu Reeves have a cameo, right. a silly cameo in it, and you do enough stuff like that, then we all know that we're living in a fantasy world and it's that, yeah, it apologizes for itself. Right, exactly. And the other way you can do it is if you have some other progressive thing that you're doing, the big example from recent times would be with the Asians. They're crazy, they're rich, crazy, crazy rich, rich Asians, Asians, which is just a pretty traditional rom-com very materialistic has i mean if you if you have any criticisms of china then you 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 might find that movie to be problematic at the least but it does basically tell us tell a a rom-com story but we can do it because it's it's crazy rich asians it's not just white people representation yeah representation Mm -hmm. yay but it is just, it's a conservative genre. The one that me and my wife just watched, because this is a favorite that she grew up with, is 13 Going on 30. That movie is insanely, weirdly conservative. You're like, what were they thinking? How did they let this pass the woke censors even of that, that, even of that time? It's like, uh, Jennifer Garner wants to have a career as a glitzy lady person. And then she travels forward in time and realizes that that would be soulless and stupid and actually she should just be uh ruffalo's wife (laughs) and then she gets to do it all again and she's given up the career and everything and her and ruffalo are moving into a house in a neighborhood and it's like the most (laughs) uh, heteronormative 1950 i mean it's just like you couldn't be a troll red pill person and write a more troll red pill script so that's an exaggeration you could but it's crazy how conservative this genre is in its in its nascent form we can't do it anymore i think that's why it died i think it's too bad i think somebody will probably bring it back because it's so undeniable like the rom-com's not dead forever but it's going you can't build you're not going to build careers around it for a while at least yet i mean the other thing that's happened is our whole model of movies is built around like tentpole franchise superhero we spend a billion dollars we make two billion dollars movies and that just doesn't 
that does it just studios spend money on Marvel movies and they spend money on little indie dramas that cost like a million dollars. The era of the 50 million or 40 million or 30 million adult prestige comedy or drama is kind of dead. Maybe there's still some made for the Oscar race and there's people like Bradley Cooper, Guillermo del Toro. There's, there's Clint Eastwood. There's people that are in that business. Maybe uh, what's his face? Chris Nolan, you could argue that, that, that have the clout to keep making those mid-range movies for adults, but they're fewer and farther between. Uh, never fear, Nathan. The rom-com's got to make a comeback within the MCU. You just wait until Thor, Love and Thunder. Oh, boy. Taika is going to give us a, a beautiful rom-com between Thor and Jane. Yeah, and it's going to be completely unsatisfying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds terrible. Yeah. It's going to be bad. It's going to be about how a man-child should always be a man-child and women should step up to the plate because man child got a man child <sighs> uh, finally a woman thor finally it's what the world the world can let out its breath we've been given a woman thor it's return to me exists in this in this genre it is bonnie hunt just doing this genre doing a pretty conservative spin on it not not really trying to reinvent the wheel maybe adding a little bit of drama juice to the beginning and we are finally at the place where we discuss the movie, <laughs> guys. <laughs> what do you want to say about Return to Me? I felt I had a good time with it. I enjoyed it. The first act was a little over the top and ham-fisted in the drama for me, but I loved all the payoffs and I couldn't get over how much they asked of David Duchovny in this movie. To me, that's the kind of performance, if there was any justice in the world, that would win an Academy Award. In terms of the discrepancy between well, what's on the page, what's... Yeah. Right. It's like what they demanded was an Oscar-level performance with B-level material. I mean, it, I mean, it's a good B-level material. It's it's fun and funny and cute and all, all the things, but they asked so much of him. And so, just like... Okay, you've got to develop rapport with with this actress and make her feel like you've been married for fifteen years and or whatever. And you got to be super cute with her. She was well cast, and that whole thing was effortlessly. I thought, yeah, that's the kind of thing that's can be really bad. Oh, here's the actress we didn't cast to actually be the real girl, but right. But she feels like another version, another real girl that could have been. Right. Yeah. So we've got to do that. Then we've got to have her die and then we have to have you like crying on the floor mm-hmm. and you have to develop then rapport with the dog rapport with the the people that come and serve you food and take care of your dog you have to develop rapport with this odd cast of irish italian old men mm-hmm. and you have to develop rapport with bonnie hunt and jim belushi and you have to develop new rapport with Minnie driver over the course <laughs> of this film in such a way that we buy into the fact that you have successfully buried the past with the wife that you built rapport with in the first, you know, 10 minutes of the movie. We have to feel all the pain and weight of all of that throughout the movie, but then we have to be able to buy that you are able to set that aside and you've built enough with Mini Driver Mm -hmm. that now this is inevitable and what we all want. And you never question a single one of those things. And it's just amazing. Like you, you stack all of that up on paper and it's like, that is a huge ask of any male lead in a dopey little mid-range, low-budget rom-com. It's crazy. I don't know. That, that was the thing that I just kept 
I, I mean, kind I, of coming back to it. <laughs> and I thought he did a, a really credible job with it. Oh, and he's also got to be a hunky construction worker who is able to like walk on the rooftops with his hard hat and go up and down the ladders and look good in a t-shirt. But also he supervises the jobs the way a superintendent would, a supervisor would, but also he's the architect who designs it. And it's just like, well, that's not how construction works, but okay. Like (laughs) it's all, he's got to pull it all together. We all know a hunky architect who spends his time on building sites in a t-shirt. Right. They're, They're a dime a dozen. Yeah, I, but it's the pulling together of all those impossible things that make th- that makes this movie still last for people and m- m- keeps it in people's memory. Like all the impossible David Duchovny stuff is what people like. All the intensity, the improbability, the like, the too muchness. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. What, it's like yeah, I think that's true. What people like. It, it's the fact that they asked so much, and he was able to largely deliver well all, there's an additional intangible thing that you haven't mm-hmm. even mentioned yet he has to have good chemistry with mini driver she, I, I did mention did. Or you, you did okay yeah, very briefly yeah um, yes i said he has to build enough chemistry with mini driver that all the things that he sells about his previous wife have to be overcome mm-hmm. while still being there and creating enough of a conflict to drive them apart but what i just thought the water scene with the the dumb uh, first date uh, that the company goes on you want Swiss water all that stuff right yeah. uh, the the character that's just set up for you to hate man that scene plays like yeah, not 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 so much the comedy for me but mini driver fills up the thing and the smiles and it's just like okay you win movie like yeah. I like the I like these two people together they have chemistry I don't I don't know yeah. what it is I don't know how to define it but they've got it and therefore this movie works like yeah. and if you deconstruct the premise it's the stupidest premise ever. Man is in an awkward position and decides and is is there for all of five minutes, but decides the waitress is the one for him. Like that's so stupid. But it they totally sell it and make it work. I mean, that's just a skill that you can't bottle. It is the kind of thing that Academy Awards should honor. The material is nothing but the amount of work that they have to do to make that that thing actually mm-hmm. make the make that blimp fly. It's incredible. It's incredible what they do right there. Both of them, I think. And, and, and saddled with like a stupid comedy premise with the, the lady who's just there to be annoying. And um, I mean, you, you even got the sidekick that's like, he's like the tender friend, old friend of the wife, friend of the husband, but then he's a complete idiot. The buffoon, yeah. Most of the, most of the time, whenever the script needs him to be. A buffoon who has terrible taste in women, mm-hmm. makes bad jokes, is drinking too much. <laughs> the movie is just having it any way it wants it and all that's going on in the background. Yeah, it's it's incredible what they do. It's amazing to me that Duchovny didn't get any bigger, better roles out of this movie. Well, you have to feel a little bit bad about the X-Files. I Struck mean, him I, down. I'm sure every time he walks into his 14-room mansion, he probably doesn't feel too bad about the X-Files. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know, right. But people did just think of him that way and do still to this day. And he's a tremendous comedic actor. I mean, he, what he does on the X-Files is incredible too. Yeah, um, it's true. But he, I, the other thing about Duchovny, maybe the reason he never had quite the A-lister pr- uh, career that some other people have, he is so subtle. He does, uh, he does underplay, which is wonderful. And he's very charming at it. But it's but it's hard to catch him actually doing anything. I mean, that's the like other crying th- on the floor. Yeah. Well, he uh, he does. There there are those moments. Yeah. But for the no, most right. for the most part, his energy is just like, hey, I showed up. 
and actually, I mean, he's more like Colin Farrell in that sense, who's always doing this fine, invisible stuff. And you, you can ask him to be like a giant, sure. you know, crazy yeah. thing like the penguin if you want. And sweetheart. He can, he, yeah. he, 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 take it easy, sweetheart. <laughs> My favorite line from the Batman. Yeah. Um, it, and, and, he, and he can do that for you. He can be like a, a ridiculous villain in a terrible superhero movie that I... That is that's awful called Daredevil, but uh, he can <laughs> yes. he can he can do anything you ask him. But but if you just let him come into a scene, he'll do all this underplayed stuff. Like, but he'll do it. He'll be doing a ton of work the whole time. That, that's that's a, such a great pull because in both cases, Hollywood doesn't know what to do exactly with those men, no. especially when they were in their sexual prime. Like they're both these great looking guys, but they they both kind of underplay it and bring a weird energy to the material. They they almost bring like weird sardonic character actor energy to yeah. mm-hmm. to Brad Pitt material, and right. Hollywood's just like. Who are you? What do we cast you? Are you the best friend? Are you the lead? Like, what do we? Are you the villain? You look what like the you? lead. What? What are you? And Duchovny hasn't had that second that career renaissance. Like Colin Farrell, now that he's not as pretty, he's getting more interesting roles. I think it's not. It's like, well, we don't just have to hire him for SWAT. We can, <laughs> we can, you know, we'll SWAT. have him do the Penguin. We'll take, let him take a swing. Uh, Duchovny, maybe he has. I mean, I never will. I looked at his IMDb, and this is his. His biggest movie. Yeah. And maybe it's just that this movie yeah. didn't connect as hard with like a mainstream, you know, audience. Mini Driver didn't. She never became the... She's in any number of, of roles, but nobody thinks of her the way they think of Julia Roberts. I mean, she herself is a blast of 90s nostalgia. She's the chick from Goodwill Hunting. She's the chick right. from Good Gross Point Blank. I mean, if mm-hmm. you, when you think mismatched skirts and tops... Mini Driver is like the queen of the mismatched. I'm sure there's someone who's more the queen mm-hmm. of the mismatched. Yeah, I mean she's up. she's cute and bohemian and 90s, but she's she doesn't transcend no. anything the way that Meg Ryan or Julia Roberts does. No, she yeah. just mm-hmm. exists there. But yeah. I think she, I like her in this movie. I, I like she's in a similar way to Duchovny. She does, she's not asked to do all the stuff. I mean Duchovny is the more impressive ask in this movie for sure. But I like her in that she's. She's more or less mainstream, beautiful and all that. And yet she's just bringing a slightly off kilter mm-hmm. energy to this very standard role. She's just a little sardonic or a little standing outside of it or something. Some I, of the choices that some of the comedic choices of how she handles like the slap. Yeah. You know, and the aftermath just, yeah, off kilter, I guess is a good way. Well, and just like different. Mini Driver doesn't have the same neediness that. Like a Meg Ryan, like Meg Ryan needs you to think that she's adorable. Like her hair is perfectly done in the most adorable way. Even when she's sick and you've got mail, it's like the most silly, like how can you make blowing a snot into a handkerchief into the cutest thing that anyone's ever done? That's like Meg Ryan made a career out of that. <laughs> Minnie Driver doesn't feel like she's asking for it. It feels like she's, she's just kind of is who she is in the movie in a way that's a little different for, mm-hmm. I mean, if you compare it to the big three, the triumvirate of Bullock, Roberts, and Ryan, Driver's not doing anything like what they do to try and be likable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like the two leads. I like the chemistry between them. I mean, one of the reasons I let myself go on and on with context is because I didn't know how much we'd actually have to say about this movie besides that it's it's likable and lovable. and It's I, charming and fun and... I agree with you that the first act is a little over the top. I think it's an interesting... It's what, it's what would keep me from coming back to it. That first act? Yeah. 
I didn't mind it as much as you seem to have. I mean, I thought the the cut from dancing to ER without having to sit through a bunch of boring. We're I, getting into the car I now. I thought that, I thought, a that lot. Was, I thought that was pretty great. I thought where it sucked, like where it was just like, oh, we've done the difference between per, too much, just enough, and way too much. Was Duchovny collapses on the floor. He's a great actor. We have a wide shot. We're not. We're not, we're not going in for a close-up even, like, which is the hammy bad choice there. Like, we're, we're doing this perfectly. We're just standing a little bit outside of his grief and asking the audience to come with him. Like, it's perfect. That's, that's mm-hmm. how a great director would do it. And then she does what a terrible director would do, which is cut to a cheesy slow-mo yep. uh, flashback of the wife looking beautiful. And then she does it again a couple minutes later. And it's just like, you couldn't ask for a more, a, a better lesson in, like, how to ruin a, a good thing how to, how yeah, to, how to it's, it's just enough for me to be like i don't want to to create enough of a barrier to be like i'm not sure i want to come back and like you, you're gonna try to milk tears from us yeah i didn't take it personally that way like i didn't mind the attempt i just, I just kind of was like <laughs> you tried uh, that's nice but i actually did have some tears when we cut to the er room i just it really was that flashback was just like, oh, no, you had me. You had me. Why movie? Why'd you do it? <laughs> I don't feel bad about somebody liking this first act or considering it to be moving or whatever. Like, it's 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 fine. It's a little cheesy. I'll tell you what was too much for me was actually act two was like the the cuteness of the Irish Italian restaurant was a little bit much. And the Carol O'Connor. I mean, I love Carol O'Connor as much as the next person. but. His his wee Irish accent was maybe a little uh, much for me. And I love Robert Loggia is like the, the best actor in the world. <laughs> With that voice, I, I don't know. I can't <laughs> do pretty, it. It's, it's, it's my Leia voice, that, I guess. But Grizzled Italian. People don't smoke anymore. So we just, we're never going to have voices like that anymore. I mean, he played, uh, if people don't know, I mean, he just was in everything, but he was like, he played Bill Sykes in Oliver and Company, that awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Sykes, yeah. really? Yeah, he's in Lost Highway, Scarface, things like that. Probably most people remember him as the general in Independence Day. Oh, yeah, you know, of course. Get on the wire, tell him how to bring these sons of whatever's down, <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's great. I mean, he's just one of those guys that don't exist anymore, like George C. Scott or somebody right. where he just brings inherent authority you just plop them in there and you're like whoa i'm scared of this guy even in a genial romantic comedy it's like i wouldn't cross robert Logia. like yes sir frank sinatra he is the best uh, <laughs> sure <laughs> uh. but yeah so i i did like the i don't know how did you guys feel about, i guess we already talked about it a little bit the, the cabal of supporting just cute, fine. Cute old i people. enjoyed it yeah they're fun it's always it's on a it's on a it's on a tightrope between um Charming and and uh, schmaltzy, right? In terms of living, See, I, I'm, I'm much more inclined to forgive schmaltzy in that point than I am to forgive the over a top, over the top milking of emotion, slow mo. If someone's trying too hard I, to make you happy, you're okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I think I forgave the first act more easily. I was just like, eh, okay. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's actually kind of fair. In a movie like this, if they're trying too hard to make me happy, I'm gonna roll with it. Right. Whatever, that's silly. <laughs> if they're trying too hard to make me cry, I'm just gonna be like, come on, guys, it's a rom com. It really is just the conceit of 
Vesuvio's Irish restaurant or whatever. I hate that conceit <laughs> so much. It's so <laughs> stupid. Yeah, Irish Italian. Yeah, yeah. I, I just hate that restaurant. I hate <laughs> the fact that it never seems to be open except for when the plot requires yeah, it, yeah, yeah. that it can close at like 6 p.m. and they can all hang out playing cards. It's just like the difference between that and the charm of Cheers is the difference of degrees, and I don't know what it is, but something about this, <laughs> the whole conceit of this stupid restaurant that served corned beef and cabbage and chicken Vesuvio, like, drove me up the wall. <laughs> there was one thing that made me angry at this movie. It was, this, and I like the old people. I like their cards. I like to come playing cards with them and stuff. It was cute. Well, that's one of my favorite conceits in these movies. One of the most most wish fulfillmenty kind of things is, you know, it's just nice to think like there's this, like this whole family of supportive people that are going to play mm-hmm. the right music and be pulling for you and stuff like that. Yeah. But man, that restaurant was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Zero stars. <laughs> uh, you need to have some ratatouille and chill and reconnect yeah. with you yeah no i'll have <laughs> ratatouille and corned beef <laughs> <laughs> i guess when somebody tries to tell me that something is charming and it's not and they're lying to <laughs> like jake's mad when somebody tries to tell they'll tell them that something is sad but i'm mad when someone's like it's charming and it's cute and i'm like no it's not <laughs> <laughs> to give you any charming or cute points. Right. Even though I do think that everything else is charming and cute. Right. And this whole movie exists for no reason other than to be charming and cute. And it basically works. But I don't know. I, we could sit here all day and try to figure out why that one thing drives me up the wall. <laughs> what else is there to talk about in this movie? O'Reilly's Italian Restaurant. I wrote it down. That's what it's called on the marquee. O'Reilly's Italian yep. Restaurant. Ah, <laughs> so stupid. Why would anyone go to O'Reilly's Italian restaurant? Uh, (laughs) Novelty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, Nathan, you just remind me of this character in this movie who really just wanted some water that wasn't Swiss. And... (sighs) Yeah. Well, she was a great character. I would marry her. She she did make me laugh. I don't don't care how cheap it was. (laughs) She just made me crack up. And even her cleavage joke... Just made me crack up. I was like, this is hilarious. Yeah. Well, and Mini Driver so had some good uh, zingers to, to get back at her too. So it was, yeah, it was fun. It was cheap. Like, especially the part you mentioned of the, the, <laughs> da- like, the well, David Greer character yeah. suddenly being a total moron <laughs> for that whole scene, just like laughing. <laughs> I think maybe I was laughing at the movie more than I was laughing with it. But uh, <laughs> I laughed at the fact that Duchovny laughed at her joke that wasn't actually that good of a zinger. I just like that he was vibing on her and I don't know. That was fun. That was cute. Yeah. That was funny. Yeah, it was. Their chemistry is great in the in that scene. I mean, in the whole movie, but it really, just watching the movie, I was just like, oh, okay. Well, okay. The movie wins. It works. It doesn't really matter what it does from now on because I like these two people together. So, it wins. Yeah. You can make no further criticism. It has done what it promised to do. And now we just have to have another hour of it continuing to do that. As long as it doesn't majorly mess it up, it's going to be just fine. Uh, I did like actually Bonnie Hunt and Jim Belushi. I thought they were... Yeah, they're pretty fun. I never thought I'd hear these words come out of my mouth, but I thought that Jim Belushi was actually pretty pretty funny in it. Mm. He actually made me... I never... like If I'm alone and I'm watching a comedy, I'll be like, I appreciate the humor, but I rarely laugh out loud if there's not someone there to mm-hmm. laugh with me, as I think many people are like that. But there was some line... 
Oh, the kid, I don't know why this was funny to me, but or as funny as it was, but the kid says, Mommy said the gorillas j- look just like you. <laughs> Belushi says, Did she take you to see the elephants? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. You know what I liked about that line? The, the humility that Bonnie Hunt had to have to put that, and the fact that because Bonnie Hunt directed it, she could write a line that mean for herself, like, and include it in. Yeah. Like nobody wants to say, "Hey, Bonnie Hunt, look what I put in the script." Your husband says you're fat, but <laughs> but Bonnie Hunt can do that. So, yay, Bonnie Hunt! Yeah, I I had forgotten about this, but the movie at first is like Bonnie Hunt's going to be a a you know what who hates her husband mm. and hates her family, and actually it's just like a charade. Yeah, it's just like they're that's their shtick that's that's their shtick we hate hate each each other other. and we hate everything and we hate the kids but actually we love each other we kind of really love each other and the kids yeah yeah Yeah. and i don't yeah people like that exist outside of movies i think that's just for sure i appreciated it yeah yeah i I just so weird to be in an era where bonnie hunt would intentionally cast jim belushi to play that character but uh uh, interesting what else is there to say about this movie yeah it's it's very cute i liked mini driver she was good I enjoyed the chemistry between the two of them. I enjoyed the chemistry between the the characters. I'm not sure that I really needed her to go to Italy. But there was a promise. Yeah. <clears throat> Payoff set up. I just for once, I'd like to see one of these movies where we solve everything in the one dialogue scene like we would in real life. He's just like, yeah, I, I need to think about this, but uh, yeah, I like you. I, I know we need like the false breakup before the get together. That's that's the formula, and I'm not mm-hmm. really I'm not really struggling too hard against it. But I think that that would be a nice a nice juke, a nice thing for one of these movies to do when when they start making them again. Is I don't know, maybe it wouldn't work. Maybe maybe you really just need that false breakup second. You know, the big drama of the going into the third act. Hmm. Maybe maybe the movie you just don't feel satisfied without it. But that is, I mean, even when we talked about it, it happened one night. It is the part where you're kind of like, all right, movie, come on, let's. We know they're going to get together. Let's just yeah. Let's just get them together. Well, part of the weirdness of this movie is it is the way the question it makes you ask because of the premise, right? So the breakup is all premised on she has his wife's heart, and so then it's supposed to be weird, and then it asks you to think about that, but then it doesn't give you a lot of food for thought you just have to sort of put yourself there and yeah you don't really get to explore like what would david Duchovny think about what, what, what would he be feeling what would he be what would she be thinking and feeling why is she so upset exactly right. like what nobody ever articulates any of those thoughts so you have to do it all all for yourself you have to ask hmm. and some people are going to be sitting there like well the movies told me that they love each other and it's great and the heart thing doesn't matter so why does it matter and other it matters are, because Duchovny's sad and he's on like a steel girder. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then other people are going to be like, dude, if I were mini driver, I wouldn't want to be married to, I wouldn't want to be with that guy because I would always be asking the question, like, are you, when you put your head on my chest, are you cozying up to me or to your dead wife? Like, what about all the pressure? What about all the family weirdness and like uh, just all kinds of weird questions that kind of come into play or don't and the movie has the ability to ask any number of them and chooses to ask none of them to ask none of them while asserting that it would be weird and there is something to be overcome 
We're just not going to talk about it. I, I would give the movie this. I would say the movie makes the second best choice that it could. The first best choice is to explore those things in an interesting, fun, cool, witty, compelling way. The second best choice is to uh, leave them completely alone. The right. the worst choice is to sort of try to split that. Try difference. to split the difference. Yeah, I don't fault the movie for the choice it makes. I just think that the premise creates the situ a situation that's not really clean. Yeah, there. Mm-hmm. And well, I also the only w- thing to do is to fault the premise. Yeah, and th- that's. And then the minute you fault the premise, then you're like, wait a minute, what are we even doing here? Right. Mm-hmm. And why was this movie supposed to be about a magical like heart connection with the man and his ex wife? Well, I, I almost wonder whether again? the script wasn't a little bit more magical, and they didn't end up pulling, pulling it out way, and pulling way it back. back like yeah that's what it feels we, like we don't want it to be like well mm. david the is always going to be in love with that heart <laughs> yeah exactly it, that's gonna like that, that, i imagine that's, that's that was, that was the script and then suddenly everybody realized wait a minute what about mini driver's character mm. does he love her for her like, yeah and if you if they built that up then we can't it has to be about that right so let's leave that whole song out that's yeah hmm. yeah they did they they did they did a nice job with what the other thing that i was like oh this is interesting and i'd like to see a movie actually explore this was just the notion of guys are gonna treat her f- like like it doesn't not not so much about the fact that he has her wife's heart but just the fact that she's had a heart transplant that being a thing she does not want to tell people suddenly they don't want her riding a bike or or feel queasy maybe about the idea of lovemaking or, or things like that that that's an interesting thing that someone would have to explore if they had that condition that the movie kind of mm-hmm. nods mm-hmm. towards a little bit and then Rightfully, probably, if you haven't what it is, doesn't really do anything with. But it'd be interesting to actually see the movie about a heart transplant person and how that changed their life. Uh, I mean, even once the movie kind of asked the question a little bit, I was like, oh, be careful on that bike, mini driver. Don't don't go too, too mm-hmm. fast. And she has her comedy doctor who she's just doesn't isn't listening and all that. Uh, I don't know. It's, if we keep the more we talk, it's easy to like pull on threads and say all the things that are kind of silly about the movie. But it, it maybe is a little unfair because the movie wasn't really designed to bear that kind of scrutiny. It's just supposed to be a little oh. a truffle, not a truffle, uh, a trifle, a tri- trifle. But yeah, it's supposed to be a truffle. Pigs <laughs> hunt for it. <laughs> they find it. It's very valuable. <laughs> they consume it. <laughs> uh, what's the word for like an egg concoction? A a souffle. Yeah, it's it's like a. Are souffles made out of eggs? <laughs> yes. How about but an omelet? A souffle. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with saying this movie is a souffle? I don't know. A light as air. Something that, right. something that can easily deflate if I done mean, wrong. I, I really think trifle was <laughs> the word you wanted, but. No, I'm sticking, I'm sticking with souffle. It's a, it's okay. a metaphor. It's like, right. it's, they're hard to do well. Uh-huh. If you do it right, it holds up almost uh-huh. just okay. it's like the, with air. Okay. If you do it wrong, it completely yep. deflates. A perfect metaphor. Oh, yes. yes. You nailed it. I nailed yeah, it. You did. Guys, is there... I'm just looking through my notes. Robert Loggia is awesome. O'Reilly's Italian. Uh-huh. I wrote that. Ham-fisted flashbacks. I wrote, oh, an architect. I threw a lot of love in my notes at the first wife. I thought, what a thankless part. And that, She does great. That lady does a lot. Yeah. To, I mean, the company does a lot, but also they cast a great lady to 
Just having straight. She's not done a whole. She's played Anita in the live action Hundred Dalmatians. Yeah, I was she's done. Huh. Another thing or two that I feel like I recognize her from. She feels like she could have done more. She has. She actually has good chemistry with. I mean, the other way that it's easy to go wrong with those kinds of scenes, any number of movies where the wife's going to die or something, like they're so cute with each other and in love and like goosing each other and stuff. This movie, I think, hit a nice balance of, eh, you know, it feels like a decent little marriage. Uh, She plays the aunt in The Patriot. The Mel Gibson movie? Yeah. Wow. So she was in the greatest movie of all time. Right. Already. Yeah. And she was a star in Nip Tuck, which I've never seen. Me neither. Nope. She looks like a central character in Nip Tuck, third build. Well, there you go. Good for you, Joel Joely Richardson. Probably Joely, right? Joely. Yeah. Event Horizon's not a movie I've seen. I have seen that, unfortunately, but I have no memory of it almost. Oh, I know who she is in that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've seen most of it on TV. I yeah, don't know I, why I did I, that. I think that might be the same story for me. That and was the wrong decision. It was unfortunate. I suppose it was a, it, better than watching it not on TV. Yeah, it's it. a stupid, gross movie that it's just gross. Directed by a stupid, gross director that does yeah. nothing but stupid, gross things. That's right. Ugh. Ah, boy. All right. Uh, anything else to say about this movie, guys? I liked it. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I understand why it's a touchstone for some people. Yeah, I get it for sure. I like it. I mean, this is why I spent so much time on my thesis. I think there's nothing you can particularly say about this movie one way or another besides that it's a nice little world that you like to live in and it's got a couple stars that that have some chemistry. And for some people, that's that's the kind of thing that they want to go back to again and again. And that's fine if you don't mm-hmm. make a sinful addiction out of it. Ben, how many transplanted hearts out of 14 do you give to return to me? Out of 14, huh? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'd probably give it, we'll say 10. 10 transplanted yeah. hearts? A document four for just... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a three-star movie out of four. Yeah. I'm with, I'm basically with the Ebert review I saw last week. Yeah, what Ebert says is, it's fine, it's good. People are knocking it for having the tropes of a romantic comedy. And, and for having its premise about the heart. And he's just like, if you're so grumpy that you can't give the, give the movie its sweet little premise, then why did you go see this movie in the first place? And I think that's pretty fair. Mm-hmm. Jake, how many transplanted hearts out of 14 do you give to this movie? 10. 10? Yeah, I'll give it 10. I, you know, I could dock it a few more for trading in a lot of blasphemies, which is mm, yeah. Annoying, yeah, that's unfortunate. Annoying, annoying thing for this PG thir- or PG rated movie it's a rare movie that has a likable characters be religious i guess right right i don't don't know if there's anything worth saying about that and it's the religious characters who are going to do all the blaspheming the catholic family yeah well bonnie hunt apparently grew up in a big chicago catholic family with lots of kids i mean she was also the wife and cheaper by the dozen so she obviously has some affinity for this lifestyle and these kinds of people. Mm-hmm. But she certainly doesn't have anything profound to say about them besides it's cute, kind of fun. It's really cute when kids repeat blasphemies. Yes, that was unfortunate. I mean, I like the conceit of those scenes were fun in a screwball comedy. Like the kids are 
bouncing off the walls and repeating all the bad things that dad's saying but that's too bad that that had to extend to blasphemies all right uh yeah uh since i'm generally just more holy than you guys i guess i'll give it nine transplanted hearts out of 14 Mm. docket an additional one for the things we just mentioned but you know you you guys can be sinners and enjoy this movie. Thank you. Uh, Return to Me, 2000's Return to Me, a mini driver, David Duchovny, classic. We we talked about it. Indeed, we did. And covered the rise and fall of the 90s romantic comedy. And you know who else has risen, but I doubt will ever fall, is our patron choice award winner of excellence. Person who I will tell you exactly who they are as soon as I pull up my list. Ooh, it looks like we've got two. We've got a couple. All right. We've got Ryan and Judith. Well, we should have a romantic couple for this movie. Yeah, Ryan and Judith. Ryan and Judith, yeah. They they like to mock people who want their water a certain way. Really? Behind their back in a a charming, sardonic, low-key kind of way. I'm sure those people deserve it. Oh, yeah. People are snobs and slobs and blobs. Who likes those people? Well, until next time. Jake, there's so many memorable lines. Come on, Jake. <laughs> Did you visit the Crap. elephants? <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Some of the best lines are not appropriate. <laughs> IMBD quotes return. Return to me. You're going to get a heart. I know. Wow, these quotes suck. Yeah. Wait, here's just a page of Jim Belushi quotes. <laughs> How many of them don't have... A blasphemy? Almost mm-hmm. none of them. Uh, fine. Did you go to see the elephants? Oh, you know what? It was that another pretty funny, the jokiest joke I've heard in a movie in a long time, but a good jokey joke was when David Greer says, I'm a vet. And then Jim Belushi says, oh, I didn't go to Nam." <laughs> that was that was a joke <laughs> I like jokes I miss jokes <laughs> good for you Jim Belushi alright I stepped on it Jake until next time I didn't go to Nam. <laughs> <laughs>